Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 6, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Matt Continetti is out today joining us. Commentary contributing editor, host of the Re-Education podcast, frequent podcast guest, Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, Before we get going, I want to commend to everybody's attention Eli's latest podcast. Uh, You do this weekly, and the latest one is a tour de force. It's called John Lennon spelled L E N I N. And it is an, it is an, uh, I would call it like essentially a radio documentary, like an hour long radio documentary about the time that John Lennon moved from being a hippie love is all you need you know if you go carrying pictures of chairman man yeah, you ain't gonna right. make it with anyone anyhow in the in the sort of like 67 68 period to actually shifting far to the left uh playing footsie with revolutionary violence what happened there and um and and who his associations were at that time ranging from the uh, yippies to the Black Panthers to and the Angela White Davis, Panthers, which and the White Panthers, which everyone's forgotten about, but they were just as violent. Yeah. And anyway, as somebody who was obsessed and consumed with material about this time period, though less obsessed and consumed with John Lennon, uh, uh, it's really fantastic. You should go subscribe to the Reeducation podcast and listen to this really um, sensational uh, piece of podcasting. Anyway, so Eli, I've now sold your podcast, and I'm going to sell your article, uh, The Iraq War 20 Years Later, uh, but I think we're going to do some rank uh, punditry and talk uh, pop politics first. If Sounds that's great. Okay with everybody. Okay. Uh, Trump spoke at CPAC, and DeSantis spoke at the Reagan Library. I did not see the DeSantis speech, but I did watch most of the Trump speech. And um, it struck me that uh, he's back, baby. The, uh, the uh, Trump of the horribly bad announcement speech when he declared his candidacy for president uh, in the Mar-a-Lago ballroom. That This wasn't him. This was old Trump, uh, full of beans, full of piss and vinegar, uh, crazy, uh, conspiratorial, awful, um, demagogic, uh, full of policies that could never be enacted. But, um, but if, if those are the lyrics and the lyrics are bad, the music is the old Trump music. So, and as we know, uh, ain't nobody love a good piece of old Trump music more, not only than the CPAC crowd, but then a considerable number of people in the Republican party who are going to choose, the nominee for president in 2024. And if you are concerned about Trump being the nominee in 2024, you should be very concerned. You should be even more concerned than you were before uh, because uh, uh, that guy still has it, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, it's a long way till we get to 1,230 delegates or whatever it is in the Republican Party that gets you the majority. But um, he's not, uh, Abe, do you think he's lost a step? Because I didn't, I did not discern a step lost. Yeah, no, I'm with you. By the way, I I saw most of uh, DeSantis' speech, which I thought was, I actually thought was good, Uh um, but it, it doesn't rival Trump's show in terms of energy um and performance um he has this weird and i've forgotten this he has this weird way of and he he was doing this at, at cpac of sort of roping the audience in no matter how crazy the thing he says no matter how obnoxious no matter how repulsive it doesn't matter he gets you uh involved to the point that you that you kind of you kind of think it's okay that you kind of he sells it as uh yeah i guess i guess that makes some sort of sense i guess he could do that 
Um, and that was very much it was it's that sort of confidence um, that we're, we're, it's, it's not even confidence. It's, it's a sort of delusion that 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 that, that, that spreads. I think sell is a really good word. Like if if you've ever. I did this once 20, 30 years ago, you know, that thing where you would get offered a free trip if you sat in a room and listened to a pitch about buying a timeshare. Mm-hmm. Remember this? They'd say anything. We'll buy you a plane ticket. You can get three days. You just have to sit and listen to a pitch about a timeshare. So I did it once. And if the, the person was, was very good. And if you go through this, you do kind of got nothing else to do. You're sitting there, right? I mean, I guess if you're watching the CPAC speech at home on, on C-SPAN, you can be on your computer and doing five different things at once. But if you're in the ballroom, certainly you got nothing else to do. If you're in this timeshare thing, you got nothing else to do. And you kind of start going into the as if of it. Yeah, that sounds, you know, it's good view, you know, maybe I could get my, you know, my parents could stay for a weekend and you know, they have this great system like you can trade yours for somebody else's and then go to Newport Beach instead of to, you know, St. Okay, Augustine. But can, can I can I okay. butt in here and say, yeah, yeah, but then like an hour later, you're, you're you signed on to be a member of the Heaven's Gate cult. I, I actually think <laughs> that you, and maybe I'm cynical because my stepdad for many years was a traveling insurance salesman and I would listen to him work his pitch and everything. But there's the, the thing that's different now versus you, you guys are both right about the appeal and that Trump's back in, in that way. But what he's selling now, what he's like ma- trying to make the audience become his co-conspirators on is nuts. I mean, it's it's January 6th stuff. It's it's all of the, not entirely, but a lot of it is the kind of paranoid uh, score settling that's different from the paranoid score settling he did in 2016. That score settling spoke to the same concerns that his audience had. I'm I, His hardcore people think he was set up, that January 6th was overblown. They believe all that. And those were the people who are at CPAC, which has become a kind of strange terrarium of conservative, you know, uh, Extremism. Uh, extremism. Thank you. I was going to say something okay. less uh, yeah. uh, diplomatic. But that, I, I, I'm not sure. I disagree that that is going to play to even the broader base because the, nobody really wants to revisit all the losing that's happened since he lost in 2020. Oh, I thought the craziest stuff wasn't even the January 6th stuff. I thought the craziest stuff were the, were, were his policy pronouncements uh, ending with the they're going to take federal lands and they're going to cons- build we're going to win and we're going to build 10 new freedom cities literally timeshares on on, on fe- yeah exactly yeah yeah it's like they're going to build incept 10 brasilias because you know the building right. of entirely new cities from the ground up in the 20th century was such a great success Columbia, Maryland, Reston, <laughs> Virginia, Brasilia. I don't know. Uh, Soviet Union. I mean, it's funny because he's saying they're saying we're, you know, we well, now it's, are it's Marxists. China. And I was going to say it's, yeah. chi- it's definitely yeah. China. Those ring cities. But yeah. Russia did it. I mean, Russia incepted, uh, the Soviet Union incepted cities from the get-go. Yeah, he's talking about sort of like some kind of weird command economy. Uh, some other stuff about trade and other things. So I, I'm not even sure that the September that the January 6th stuff was the craziest simply as a matter of here's what we're going to do with the country. We're going to build 10 cities in Idaho. You know, I mean, OK, he's already got the preppers <laughs> vote like that's going to lock it in yeah. right there. I don't know. Eli, I mean, I'm at the yeah. point with with, you know, whenever he speaks and whenever any MAGA, uh, any hardcore MAGA uh, candidate speaks and offers their policies or their revenge fantasies. It's like, I don't even want to focus on the crazy anymore because I, I feel that's, that's it's almost time wasted. Like that's, 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 that's the given we're eight years into this cult. We know it's crazy. The, if, if, if the only way to challenge it is to once again, sell the better idea. Um, you, and it, it not, it's not to pick apart the crazy because it, it turns out that doesn't matter. Right. Eli here, here's what, here's, here is the key sentence, at least from the perspective of today's podcast, which is going to deal with your article yeah. uh, on the 20 year anniversary rock quote. We had a Republican party that was ruled by freaks, neocons, globalists, open border zealots, and fools. 
but we are never going back to the party of Paul Ryan, Carl Rove, and Jeb Bush. Um, I don't know who the freaks are exactly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're the freaks. Neocon, neocons, I know. Uh, globalists is actually, to be honest, not really a feature of the of the Republican coalition, if by globalists you mean what we actually mean by globalists, which are people who sort of believe in dropping all national barriers. And da, he means, da, da. I think he's, he's, he's conflating that with people who favor free trade, which has been a conservative okay, principle for open borders, yeah. zealots, uh, and fools. So yeah, there could be many fools. Um, anyway. Uh, okay. So this is, this is the war Trump is saying yeah. to the CPAC crowd, I'm with you. I'm your tribune. I'm your retribution. Uh, and I came along to save our, your party from us, <laughs> from, from the neocons. And we're never going back there. And he's right. Uh, we're not going back there. He drove Paul Ryan out of politics. Carl yeah. Rove is essentially retired from politics. Jeb Bush is not in politics so congratulations to him for you know for having uh, done that i guess the question is can you get elected president in the united states when you have alienated everybody in your own uh, when you have driven from the quarters of power or whatever everybody um in your coalition who is not already in total agreement with you the answer we already know is no but the way I look at it is, I mean, I, maybe this is naive, but I see there's one way to look at Trump as just one of the greatest kind of BS talkers in American history. And he is in the same category as like a P.T. Barnum um, or the pioneers of like right wing talk radio, um, like, a you know, in some ways, like a Rush Limbaugh, even though I think Rush Limbaugh had more of an appreciation of conservative ideology, obviously, than Trump. But he's a great talker. And that is a form of entertainment. And he loves to entertain these crowds like a live concert, the way he, people talk about it. Is there a way to just put the genie baby back in the bottle and say, you can have as much Trump entertainment as you want? People really like the show. But there's a part of me that hopes that at least deep down, even people who are into the show can uh, kind of know somewhere in themselves that this is not a you can't govern this way. They just like it. And I understand that I'm somebody who I used to listen to talk radio. You know, I, I still do listen to sometimes to talk radio. I get it. I'm a big I listen to a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of people who really like it as entertainment. Trump, I think, identifies primarily through the lens of entertainment. Is there a bargain that we can make with him? It's like, you know what? You can go on as you can tour the country. You can have this. It's your show. Um, you don't really want to be the president. You don't you don't want to have to deal with this. Like, you don't want to have to, like, make hard decisions on, like, whether or not to deploy the National Guard in the country when there's rioting on all these cities. You don't want to have to do that because he doesn't want to have to do that. He, he showed that when he was president. So I don't know. It's probably naive, but there's a part of me that just thinks, can we give Trump and his fans what they want? which is the show without uh, once again, screwing up an election in this country for the Republican party. No, because there is, I know, no, but I, I just, it seems no, like it, no can, everybody can be happy. I'm trying Gotta to get him a Netflix special. Eli. Yeah, it's exactly. Get him a Netflix. This no, but look, a I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing about what happened with the election, which is that um, could have lost, could have set up. Yeah. True social. He could have had two hours a night on Fox if he just if he just gone gently, right? Yeah, he actually, would have had everything that you would have wanted. You know, uh, Jesse Waters wouldn't be in the seven o'clock slot. Yeah, it would Trump have been would be in the yeah, seven o'clock right. slot. Whatever. He decided not to play that. He started True Social. It's too weird to be a replacement for Twitter, and it's too isolated. And so he doesn't have the organizational or visionary capacity to see the world beyond whether or not he won or lost in in 2020 now i will say this two things about you know i watched this we were in our text chat i said you know i look uh i don't think that this person can win the presidency in 2024 
Yeah, I mean, could run against Biden could literally be drooling in a cup. We know from Pennsylvania that, you know, a guy can be a stroke victim and win the Senate if the other choices are too unpalatable. And if Biden is senile, he'll still be a better choice for a lot of people in the country than Trump was or enough people. In other words, every Democrat will vote for him and then enough independents will be so repulsed by Trump that they'll that Biden can still. But in the Republican camp, the question is, is this, you know, Trump? Uh, going back and playing is great. You know, he's a Sinatra, like Sinatra retires right. in 1970 saying, I can't deal with all this rock music. And then three or four years later, he comes back and it's old blue eyes is back and he's still singing his old stuff. And then he records this, um, you know, sensational album and he's back uh, trilogy. So is that, is he Sinatra or is he, you know, is he going to end up, you know, at, mohegan sun on thursday night you know and we don't we don't we don't know but one thing is that at cpac he won right he won the straw poll at cpac of course he did yeah but he didn't win 90 percent yeah <laughs> i mean he won 62 percent to desantis's 28 now that's actually better than he did last year when he won cpac i think 59 to 30 but there's still 40% of people at CPAC who don't want him. Now, I don't know what that... I'm not saying CPAC is representative. CPAC is a freak show. Nobody came. 4,000 people bought tickets. Only 2,000 people showed up. Um, credible allegations of uh, uh, appalling sexual misconduct by um by its uh, creepy chief uh, match lap may have played a role there sure but nonetheless cpac's not what it used to be but there are other things like turning point charlie kirk's thing that are so so like let me let me let me state it another okay. way yeah okay when let's contrast it there, there for 50 years there was a conservative movement to change the nature of the supreme court it was driven initially by the road decision but it was something that you had to build. It took discipline. It was largely unglamorous. It was, you know, a lot of like, you know, licking envelopes and things like that to organize to get a particular outcome. Then there's this. And this is a show. This is a catharsis. This is a feeling that you get when you see a great band that you just love. And I just think these are two different kinds of things. And it's more ephemeral so I don't know that the Trump fans do the Trump fans even agree on like what they think the most important thing is the new federal land cities or, you know, cleaning up the FBI. I don't know. You know, do they care? No, they just want to be they want someone who they identify like, yes, you're a tribune of anger. You're a tribune of resentment. And um, that experience is what they're out for, as opposed to what CPAC used to be, which were conservative activists who had a plan and thought that, you know, in the next 10 years, we're going to you know, change the way right. we think about social security. Right. That's, I mean, and I'm just saying that these are two different things. And in a weird way, you could argue they kind of co coexisted for most of Trump's presidency. There were a lot of conservative things that got done while Trump gave the show. And I'm just wondering, is there a way to try to, you know, pull those things apart? But what one thing that I thought was interesting that he brought up, and I don't know if this was sort of his id uh, getting away with him, but he mentioned, I will continue to run even if I'm indicted. I'm going to continue to run even if I'm indicted. And that shouldn't be an applause line even for hardcore folks, except that in the entertainment uh, version that I think you're absolutely right, Eli, to describe him in, that's ju that just adds to his, you know, sort of martyr complex. And he can say, you know, even if they indict me, you know, the us versus them stuff is very powerful. But I don't know what that would mean for even a kind of former Trump voter who, who didn't like what happened in the last elections, who, who thinks someone like Carrie Lake is just a grifting opportunist who is modeling herself on the on the Trump model of denying an election result and saying, eh, I don't know, like, I, do we really want to lose again? Do we really want Biden to win so that we can stand on principle for our martyr here? I'm not sure that a lot of people who voted for Trump the first time around and maybe even the second time around, I'm not sure they have the patience to do it a third time. 
What if I told you you could have both? Vote for Ron DeSantis for president, but tune in next week for Donald Trump's like rant on whatever, you know, I mean, and then you get the best of both worlds and everybody's happy. But I think we underestimate the degree to which losing a general election is offset by what Trumpies feel is a victory over the freaks and neocons that that he that he uh, characterizes that they'll take that. That's true. Right. I mean, they will. The question is whether the whole party will. And that's what I'm saying. First of all, I just think if he only has command of 60% of the CPAC audience as opposed to 90%, there's a window. There's, there's more, there's more, there's more than a window. There's a real opening. That means that the base of the base, the Trump base, um, you know, there are people who would be happy if he shot people on Fifth Avenue, uh, but uh, they're they're not. You know, uh, there are a bunch of people who are like, okay, maybe you could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. Do you have anything else that I, you know, do you have any other jackets I can try on in the back? Because I already wore this one, and you know, I need a new jacket. I mean, I so. It, think, it's very hard. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm just starting to get, I mean, we've been talking for weeks about when, say, yeah. DeSantis is going to, you know, turn his fire on Trump. When when, when, when are these candidates and potential candidates going to take Trump on directly? And it feels now as if the time is very ripe. Um, it's it's sort of like I, I, I think we've I think we've. We've gotten to this. We've 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 crested to the, the, this first phase right. here. Um, you know, that, that the the test for there's all this talk about, oh, how do you move? You got to, you know, it's a, we're in the fire and it's running a year and no one knows what it's like. And you're in the but you're in the f- f- fishbowl. And what we don't know is what DeSantis is like on the attack in this area, um, because, you know, he I mean, I guess he was on the attack against Andrew Gillum when he ran in 2018. Um, He's been good at attacking Newsom when he was in Newsom's home state right. this weekend. I mean, but you know, we don't we don't know how fleet footed he is, and you know, you're going up against Trump, who is like the ultimate dirty fighter, who will say anything and do anything and go anywhere to knock you off your feet and to provoke a, a you know a, a a bad response or a problematic response, and that's one of the things. Like you know, we don't know what his material is like. And, you know, you remember Rubio turned on a dime and tried to play Trump as Trump. And I actually thought in 2016, I actually thought some of that stuff was funny. Um, But it was sort of off-brand for him. Now, DeSantis has already established himself as a kind of street fighter against Disney and against, well, corporations and, 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 and critical race theory and all of that stuff. So he already has the belligerence quality that is you already have, you know, liberals and Michael Beschloss and others talking about how he's a monster and he's Mussolini and, you know, he's doing in this and that and the other. So he's already established that he's somebody who is crosswise, not only of the common culture, but also of, or, you know, of liberal culture, but also, you know, willing to get down into the mud in some sense. And we'll see if he can play that here um the point is that trump is giving no sign of doing what eli would like which is kind of not going gently into that good night but it's sort of like playing himself off stage you know and uh you know getting getting elected to the rock and roll hall of fame and playing there you go. concert and go on exactly but, okay um we should create a republican hall of fame just to <laughs> orchestrate this well, you know he want that, well maybe in the he freedom that garden city. of heroes his garden right, exactly of whatever yeah. like something yeah. like that yeah. like in the freedom city in there. Yeah. yeah in the freedom and go so ahead wasn't sinatra in that garden of heroes <laughs> I'm i think was sure. sinatra do you remember that who was in that garden of elvis was in it and uh, <laughs> yeah there were some good sinatra. heroes in that garden but but trump El- has said he Engelberg doesn't like Humper- sinatra Trump Are you he, serious? He, he, yeah, he, he, oh, wow. he had dinner with him and didn't like the way he treated women. <laughs> this is oh, wow. what Trump That's said. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. The irony there. Oh my god, I can't even. All right. Um let's let's move on to the uh, p- problematic bombshell story in the New York Post this morning by Miranda Devine. New emails show Dr. Anthony Fauci commissioned scientific paper in Feb 2020 to disprove Wuhan lab leak theory. So here's the story. You can go read it yourself. I, I 
The story is that at a, a meeting we already knew about, um, that is the a bunch of people in the um, in the virology community in February of 2020, a month before the lockdown happened here in the United States, they had a big phone call meeting or they had a meeting or something like that to talk about uh, what what on earth was going on and what to do. And uh, much of the much of this meeting, as we'd already heard from the things that had come out from the citizen journalists who were working on this, was uh, that they were talking about how they needed to do something to counter the, uh, you know, the the attack on China, that uh, there was this terrible attack on China, racist, this and that and the other thing, and that uh, and that uh, this was all very bad. And um, and something needed to be done. This was uh, uh, Jeremy Farrar, the head of the British nonprofit, the Wellcome Trust, Francis Collins, head of the NIH, and Fauci, who was then and always was the head of this sub sub subcommittee of NIH or sub area of NIH. Um, and the guy named Christian Anderson and Christian Anderson then wrote a paper that was published in something called Nature medicine or uh, hold on let me find this uh nature medicine on on february uh, 17th 2020 the paper t- entitled the proximal origin of sars cov2 okay that says it was uh, improbable that uh the uh leak uh that the there was a lab leak and that the biological source from a bat or whatever was the likelier thing. So Miranda Devine's story uh, from the House sources emails where Christian Anderson sends an email to Nature Medicine uh, submitting his paper, Christian Anderson being a male, submits his paper to Nature Medicine and says this paper was prompted by Jeremy Farrow, Tony Fauci, and Francis Collins. So then eight weeks later, Fauci says, look, we know at a at a press conference with Trump standing next to him, we know that it's unlikely. On April 17th, 2020, there was a study recently where a group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists looked at the sequences in bats as they evolve and the mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. So the paper will be available. I don't have the authors right now, but we can make it available to you. So Miranda Devine's point, or this is something she's gotten from the House investigators who are looking into this, is Fauci incepted this paper, created this paper, prompted this paper, and then cited this paper as though it was independent of him and was something that proved the point rather than simply being something that was written in haste because they had this call in early February, 2020. And then like a couple of days later, Christian Anderson puts, sends the, sends the manuscript to nature medicine for in four days, four days after the call. So it's not like he was doing a lot of research in the, you know, whatever that is, 108 hours or something. Also, Um, at at this point, the Chinese hadn't shared all the information about it anyway. Or, yeah, this point or any point. Right. So so my question is, is this a smoking gun? Is this the bombshell that the Post uh, is essentially promising that it is? Or is it just... Fauci was citing a paper. Yeah, he knew the paper was in existence. Yeah, he may, may even say it would be a good thing to publish the paper, but it, it, it isn't any more than that. I mean, I, I think the more it, it well, she also mentions right that the, there was a sort of massaging of the language here, right? By by Fauci, he he, he not by Fauci, by Jeremy oh, Farrar. Okay, yeah, who is the British uh, Welcome Trust head, who asked that the word change be made from. Um, unlikely. It was unlikely that it was a lab leak to improbable that it was a lab leak. I I, I don't think this is a smoking gun. I, I think the the larger story is much more worrying, which is that we know that that early on Fauci heard from all sorts of colleagues and experts saying things like, I just don't see how this could have occurred uh, uh, 
as a result of the natural uh, virus evolution, because these spike proteins, or this, for all these things to have been incepted at the, at simultaneously uh, by chance, it seems unlikely. A lot of this stuff he got, and there was a res- and he and Fauci responded to the to the tune of, "Hang on, slow your roll. We we need to talk about this." And all, and then the very people who had been pitching him um, this theory that 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 it seems like a lab leak then came out and wrote these papers multiple papers saying it it seems unlikely they signed improbable. they signed a statement that right, right. they signed a statement so, to so me what they that, said in private was the 180 right until we, you know so any little piece of that that we can put together i think is valuable but i think that that overarching story is going to remain deeply problematic so I just, I, I was, one ahead, one little note of caution. Yeah. We still don't know whether it was natural origin or a lab leak. We know the FBI and we know that there's a new assessment from the DOE that they have low confidence. And we know that other people have now come out and said, I'm an expert in this and I think it's got to be a lab leak. But nobody, I mean, th- there is no answer to this. It remains a kind of mystery so it's not like they knew the truth and they hid the truth. Nobody knew, but they acted as if it. There's, you know, no. They hid their. They, they actively hid their ignorance and right. censored those who raised objections. Well, that's to the key narrative. thing is they censored the people who said that's the part that I think is worse. But it's not yeah. like sometimes I see people talking about this saying they knew it was from the lab and I'm like no they didn't. Yeah. That no, actually, but it goes. But it goes. Let me just say, yeah. goes to Abe's broader point he makes on this podcast frequently, like we did about the Chinese spy balloons. Like, yeah. will we ever know? Is the question. But we should. We should actually investigate right. exactly what Eli is saying. But I have no confidence that our system is going to allow for. Can that I just follow up on that briefly? Yes. I, I heard uh, Leanna Wen over the weekend, and she wrote a, a piece in the Washington Post saying this too, saying how well it. It's time to stop even. Uh, trying to blame uh, China for this, even if this was a lab leak. Because what we need to do instead is start focusing on what to do when this happens, uh, if this happens next time. I'm sorry, but holding China accountable is how you prevent this from happening next time. Also, if, if, if we find out that China covered it up, it was a lab leak then that means we have to rethink our entire national health strategy where we're subsidizing Chinese labs to bring them into this health system when they're going to game the system and screw us. Look, that's the important point. And we get back to something that, that was admitted that is, in fact, something scandalous that Fauci was involved in, but we knew this, I don't know when in 20, in 2021, in the fall of 2021, which is, you may remember that Fauci got into a fight with Rand Paul right, uh, at a hearing in the summer or something of 2020, or like in September 2021. And, uh, and Fauci said, you are propagating a lie, he said to a senator who was questioning him. I totally resent the lie you are now propagating. And what was it? It was that Rand Paul said, what was your involvement with the gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab. And Fauci said, you know, there was no gain. We have nothing to do with gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab. Gain-of-function is where you take a virus and you boost it or strengthen it in order to see what you need to do to kill it. And in 2014... Uh, the Obama administration, it's, uh, you know, I, I remember quite which department did this, but they essentially banned gain of function. They banned the use of U.S. dollars in gain of function research because of the fear that it could create a not only a moral hazard, but an actual practical hazard that you could right. strengthen something and then it, it could leak from a lab and then it could kill a lot of people. And that, in fact... Money went from the federal government, money that Fauci administered to the EcoHealth Alliance, a and a giant NGO run by a guy named Peter Dazak or Dazak, and that money went to Wuhan, and uh, and that was bad. And Fauci pretended that he didn't know that this had happened, 
And in October of 2021, the NIH sent a letter to members of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce that acknowledged two facts. I'm now quoting from Catherine Eban in Vanity Fair. One was that the EcoHealth Alliance did indeed enhance a back coronavirus to become more potentially infectious to humans, which the NIH letter described as an unexpected result of the research it funded that was carried out in partnership with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So money from the federal government that went to the EcoHealth Alliance was used at the Wuhan lab to uh, boost the bat coronavirus. And the second point that was made in this letter was that the EcoHealth Alliance had violated the terms of its grant conditions, which stipulated that it had to report if its research had increased the viral growth of a pathogen, pathogen by tenfold. We knew this a year and a half ago, or right. maybe, I don't know, 16 months ago, whatever. We knew that Fauci had deliberately misled because of fears of gain of function. And it's a perfectly fine thing to assume that the meeting in February 2020 that led four days later to the submission of this paper to the to Nature Medicine that was then cited by Fauci eight weeks later as the proof that it went from a bat to a human, that that meeting was a conversation about what are they supposed to do to protect the EcoHealth Alliance from accusations that it had engaged in gain-of-function research? And did Fauci and did people in the in the virology community in the United States essentially go behind the backs of regulators and everybody like that because they believe that this is... It, it's understandable. The gain-of-function thing is how are you going to figure out what kills off a coronavirus? What if the coronavirus is really strong? We have to see if this you know, solution we inject into this thing kills the virus off. So we need to keep doing this. And then apparently the thing that nobody would ever have wanted, no one wants the virus to escape from the lab. It's not biological. If it's biological warfare, you don't practice it in the middle of a city in one of your own cities. It's a horrible set of mistakes and then cover-ups and all this and all that. It is fair to make that association. I just don't think that this article makes that association, can prove that these things are all connected. And that is why there need to be hearings. And Fauci does need to go in front of a House investigatory oversight committee and explain himself. Um, but I don't think it's the smoking gun. But maybe it is the smoke. I don't know. It's a maybe it's like a smoking. I don't know. Maybe it's a gun where the fuse. You know, it's like it's like in a cartoon. Like it's the fuse. They've lit the fuse. See, and it's burning as it approaches the. See, you know, the I, I fear though. I fear though, particularly given the the mainstream media's absolute lack of of intellectual curiosity about any of this, and and a lot of uh, people on the left's eager desire to see all of this put behind us and not discuss, see what, what Leanna Wen was, how Leanne, Leanna Wen was talking, as Abe said. It's more like the discarded cigarette that's just going to slowly burn out by the wall, by, by the, what they're just going to, they're just going to let it like kind of, you know, sizzle out that there are a lot of people who are invested in not actually getting to the bottom of what happened in the last several years, and particularly what our uh, public health infrastructure's role was in the messaging and in the suppression of speech and in the, the, and and in perhaps the origins of a lot of a lot of what ha what happened with COVID nineteen. So I just I'm I'm not optimistic that we'll have a good story. And, and these are the so. same people who are so worried about health misinformation and health disinformation. If you want to address it, address Fauci's misinformation and disinformation. That's why people. That's why you have a spike in people who don't trust these institutions. And that the, the that this is a that they don't see that these two things are connected. It continues it's stunning. It continues to be their defense. The 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 pro bat theory uh, people. Um, they say, well, the reason that that we sort of look down our noses at the lab leak theory is because people were tying it to uh, the idea that 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 this was a weaponization of 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 the virus and other conspiracy theories that that uh, that would be you know that that would uh, result in sort of you know anti-chinese uh, prejudice um 
they they continue to blame misinformation for why they were were pushing misinformation. Yeah, look, I'm the so only place the only this. place that it's acceptable to show anti-Chinese prejudice is in college admissions. That's the only place <laughs> that it's acceptable. That's hopefully fine. not Harvard for long. Can discriminate against the Chinese, but not you, not you. Low, lowly voter who might be concerned about what happened to this country for three years. Let me take a break. Talk to you guys about fastgrowingtrees.com as we head toward the spring. Breathe some life into your own backyard with fast growing trees from shade to fresh fruit to privacy and natural beauty. Let fastgrowingtrees.com help you plant your dream garden with their expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. No more waiting in long lines at those giant garden stores and plant stores and hauling heavy plants around. With fastgrowingtrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. And their plant experts are always available to help keep your plants growing healthy through the season and beyond. And you get customized recommendations based on what you tell them are your specific needs. And with Fast Growing Trees 30-Day Alive and Thrive Guarantee, you know everything will look great, fresh, out of the box. So join over 1.5 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. Go to Fast growingtrees.com slash commentary now to get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Eli Lake, you have a piece in the March commentary right now on our website, the Iraq war 20 years later. And uh, this is something that um, is already provoking a lot of comment because basically you say that the Iraq war was not the disaster that people think it was certainly not for Iraq. Right. I mean, we can discuss what kind of a disaster it might've been for America, American foreign policy, if indeed it was, or it wasn't, but let's adduce the evidence on Iraq 20 years after uh, the war began on March 20th, uh, 2003. I agree. Uh, so let's do that. Um, and I should say, if you read the piece, I acknowledge all of the horrors and tragedies of the first eight or so years of the war. And then what came back again in 2014 after, uh, Barack Obama in 2011 withdrew prematurely in my view. Um, so, you know, Iraq has had basically two horrendous sort of wars with terrorist fanatics, um, and there has been a terrible toll that has been paid. Today, there is awful corruption. But if you know your history of Iraq, and too many people who write about it don't, then you would understand that the country that today that has had six consecutive national elections, that has a GDP that is 10 times what it was before the invasion, that um, has admittedly a raucous, but somewhat about a free press, um, there are many problems, but it's better than what it was like under Saddam Hussein, who was probably, with the exception of North Korea, the last start of Stalinist regime on the planet. And it was a soul-crushing regime. And theres I don't think that there's a, an appreciation for what A, Iraq was like under Saddam Hussein, and B, what Iraq would have been like, or the Middle East would have been like, had Saddam or his sons remained in power. And that, to me, is the key thing that people need to sort of look at when evaluating the war. Uh, if you wish to say that um, we should have pursued a policy of regime change without an invasion, I would agree. If you wish to say that there were many mistakes that were made after a successful invasion where uh, the United States was basically the, the sole power in charge of reconstructing the country, there were tons of mistakes that were made, I agree, and they were very costly mistakes. But that's different than saying um, the Iraqi people are worse off because um, their dictator is no longer there. And now they have, you know, a semi-democratic system that's very corrupt. I mean, I think that the, the central uh, yeah. finding uh, that you that you show is that two years before the war. So don't don't you can't say this is a result, a number in the war. Uh, life expectancy in Iraq was 67 years, and it is now 72 years. So in a generation, Americans may not entirely appreciate this, but that is a colossal demographic shift. Yes. 
half a decade of 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 increased lifespan uh, in a in a generation is a startlingly high number, and um, and that is a that goes and to- that's despite the fact that there was. A wave of terror, and we should acknowledge it. And I mean, of course, it was, and a war. I was there. And a war yeah, was a war, being fought. Yes. Not just terror, but there was a war being fought, and a lot of people were killed, and there was a lot of death and a lot of destruction. And yet, here they are. So that means that uh, the food supply is decent. It means that the health care is a lot better. Uh, people, yes, as you as you point out, like that was a nightmarish, barbaric regime of a sort that has rarely existed on on earth the saddam hussein regime you can and it was, al- say, it was also destabilizing yeah. i mean listen right there were people uh like laurie milroy who's incorrectly falsely claimed that that saddam had something to do with 9-11 and that's not true however saddam was subsidizing the families of suicide bombers in israel in their second intifada saddam hussein was had relationships with like every you know terrorist group whether they were secular or fundamentalist um there he it was you know if you think about the context of geopolitics after 9 11 when george w bush says you're either with us or against us was the alternative to try to come to some sort of rapprochement with saddam hussein that's it that that strikes me as a terrible uh sort of decision as well and you know the left likes to sort of say their the left's accounting of this is that every death after the U.S. invasion is on the U.S. because of the U.S. invasion. I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. This was a powder keg in Iraq. There was a majority of the country who were Shia Arabs who were suppressed for a generation. There was going to be at some point a moment when everything kind of fell apart and there would be massive kinds of retribution. And if there was no power like the united states kind of in there to try to do something even though i think they we were incompetent in a lot of the ways we managed that reconstruction then other regional players would have entered into the fray and it would have been it would have been a disaster i think either way it was a huge problem well look at look look at syria look look at what happened exactly look at syria right Right. it it would have been that but worse yeah exactly i mean what would have how would the arabs i mean would there have been an arab spring is an interesting question had there not been an iraq war but more importantly what if there was and like what would the response from kusay hussein or uday hussein or saddam hussein um so all of that i i think it's important to kind of recalibrate it my interest here is not to make a, a stupid kind of partisan or political point and say, aha, see, Paul Wolfowitz was right all along or something like that. But it's to just sort of bring back to reality what people were actually thinking. Because the majority of Americans supported the Iraq war, and it wasn't because they were gulled and tricked by Ahmed Chalabi. It was because Iraq was a massive seeping wound in the middle of the Middle East while we still had an oil-based energy economy. And some it was something that everybody you would have to deal with at some point and the other policy which was known as offshore balancing which was to sort of pit a weakened iraq against a weakened iran how humane is that how good for the iranians or the iraqis is that policy well let's talk about this also in a, yeah. in the longer term so Hus- saddam hussein takes over iraq in 1969 uh his ba- baathist right. party takes a, he consolidates his power over the 70s and beginning in about 1980 through his uh through through uh, 2003 for 23 years he was the single most destabilizing person on the face of the earth yes uh inaugurated a war a a unbelievably bloody murderous pointless war with iran used chemical 19- weapons in that war Against right. both his own population, uh, the Kurds, and the built Iranians. A, built a nuclear reactor that <laughs> Israel had to destroy in 1981. And then in 1990, uh, in an eerie uh, presage of what we are now going through in Ukraine and, and Russia, announces that Kuwait is actually a province of Iraq, invades and swallows up Kuwait causing the entire world to essentially come in on the side of the United States and its allies and all of that and say, well, you can't, if if you let this stand, you know, this is the, it's the war of all against all on the planet earth. Right. We fight the first Iraq war. 
And then, as Charlie Wilson would say of the Afghanistan war, we effed up the the end game. We left- well, we more than that, we allowed Saddam Hussein to suppress uprisings in his own right. country from the Shias yeah. in the south and the Kurds in the north. And that was a an awful decision in my view, one of the one of the low points of George H.W. Bush. Yes. And that ended with what are called these two no-fly zones. So out of a humanitarian to protect what became the Kurdistan regional government, which I think is largely a good thing, and then similar thing in the South, the United States was still engaged in trying to keep the Iraqi forces at bay from finishing the job, as it were, that they started in the aftermath of their disastrous invasion of Kuwait. Um, The 90s were unstable. There were massive sanctions. And those sanctions were because Saddam, as a result of the ceasefire that ends the first Gulf War, had to demonstrate that he'd gotten rid of all of his weapons of mass destruction. He had never done that. In fact, what we now know is that he wanted his neighbors, and his own people to think that he had chemical and biological weapons because he felt that if they thought that he didn't have such weapons, then he they would, would be vulnerable. Him. They would yeah. depose him. So he had an interest in making it, in, in making, in showing that he wasn't complying with it. And, you know, should the CIA have been more clever and understood all of this maybe? Yeah, we can, we can look back, but it wasn't because there was this massive neocon deception to launch a war for oil, which has become weirdly like this conventional wisdom in the country. It's just not true. So I was going to ask, I was was actually going to bring that up because reading your piece really reminded me how much, well, neocons, I think many neocons have correctly and properly thought through the consequences of, as you, as you point out, many of the mistakes that were made during this time, things that would have, would have, uh, should have gone differently and, and didn't. Um, but on the left, it has become such an important um, ideological marker for everything that comes after. And it's also in, in many ways, unfortunately, also become that for a certain segment of the NatCon right. This story cannot budge um, in the same way that we're arguing we should rethink the COVID-19 narrative. Yeah. Of the country's wealth. This is a narrative that in, in a weird way, I feel like the left is now more heavily invested in than the right is, or at least the neocon right. And that that it serves a very important uh, ideological and political purpose for them. Still, look, there, there are many lessons to be taken from the Iraq war, right? There are many lessons. Um, lesson was being taken about two months after the war concluded um, when certain hawks like John McCain started saying, we don't have enough troops yes, in there yes. to prevail. And this is why, as I think Matt Connetti said last week on the podcast, um, when we look at what's going on in Ukraine and we see that we are doing just enough to make sure that the Ukrainians can continue to fight the war, but we are not doing enough to help them win the war, however you want to define win. Some of that is the rueful knowledge that we went, we, we've been through this rodeo before and that we did not, for various reasons that were totally understandable, largely relating to Turkey and whether or not Turkey allowed us to base troops in the north to move them down into Iraq and therefore be, be based there, which Turkey denied us in late 2002, early 2003, and it meant that we had an entire area into which the Iraqi military could... Um, essentially evanesce and evaporate and disappear to come back and potentially fight another day. Anyway, when when L Paul Bremer disbanded the Iraqi army, we gave, we, it's like we, we gave gasoline on the fire of the insurgency. Yeah. I mean, there were terrible decisions made and the the post at first, we had this idea that we were going to create some fake government and put it in. And then that was over. And then we had a, we had this kind of, um, uh, you know, imperial chief uh, Bremer who made all sorts of bad decisions. And it really took us three, almost four years, four years really to develop the strategy that allowed us to win the war, by which I mean, we did win the Iraq war. This is the thing that is so maddening. We won the Iraq war. Yes. We won after the surge, the the passive the the war ended in around two thousand nine. Barack Obama would not have been able to withdraw in twenty eleven. 
right. had it not been some level of stability. Right. And, and then so, the, pro- so the just, Americans actually eventually won the war. The question is, was it worth the blood and treasure? And I think the general national consensus now is that it wasn't. And history is uh, history is a complicated thing. And I don't think we know how history is going to judge this yet. Abe, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that the, the the other sort of frustration here, and 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 I think what made so many people turn against the war, is that by the time we settled on the the correct strategy, which was the counterinsurgency, um, it's the it was the right strategy, but counterinsurgency itself cannot be done instantly. So that had us invested for a longer period of time than after the war went bad. Now we're invested doing the right thing after people have turned on it. And, and right. that was... You know. Well, I, I think if you wanted to take an, the view that um, there's something about America's national character that we're just not... We don't, we're not like the British. We're not, we don't have a permanent foreign office. We don't have the uh, kind of government structure. We don't have... It's, there's something about our character that we're just not good at uh, occupying countries and rebuilding them over long periods of time, which is what was needed for Iraq. And therefore, we should have had enough... Kind of self knowledge to know that even though getting rid of Saddam Hussein was an important strategic goal, invading, occupying, and doing it this way was not something that we would ever be able to succeed at. I actually think I think that's a totally plausible argument, and I I think I would accept it. But that's not the argument that the left makes, and it's not the argument that the notcons make. And they just want to say the whole thing was unnecessary based on lies. Saddam wasn't a threat. Who cares? He's just like any other dictator. And it's it, it's ignoring all of the context and history and reality of what was being those decisions that were being made in that moment. I will say this, which is that I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think it's a complicated history yeah. of, of the United States in terms of its of its occupations in this sense, which is that. um yeah, we're not we, we we don't run an empire well. Let's put it no, that we way. Don't. But when we when we had to um, uh, literally run countries that we had uh, you know invaded and defeated in war, that's Germany and Japan. We did it brilliantly. Why did we do it brilliantly? Because there was an entire national consensus around doing it the way that we did it. There was very little, There, it was a complicated thing because there was a lot of, all, all the pressure in some sense was, how much are we going to do? How big are we going to go? How much reconstruction are we going to do? How much are we going to help them? In the United States, I think the main problem with the Iraq war was that while the Senate voted 77 senators voted to authorize the iraq war that would almost appear to be a consensus right right like half the democrats and all the republicans voted to authorize the uh but it turns out it wasn't enough and if you're really going to do this once in a generation national effort involving this kind of mobilization this kind of fighting this kind of thing like that it's really hard to do it when the country isn't really rigidly, you know, rock solid behind it because the temptation to use it as a political weapon is too great. And the, the wobbliness of the people who sort of like are going along with what seems to be a consensus and would have been happy to say that it was a good thing if it had all gone well, the minute that you run into trouble or difficulty or reversals, you know, it's like imagine the the war the war with the Japanese before like 1943 or something like that in a modern context. Like, I don't know. People would be like, "Why are we even fighting there? What are we now?" Obviously, we're fighting there because of Pearl well, we Harbor. have we had that. I mean, after World War One, yeah. there there was a huge movement in the United States to try to say absolutely never another European war again. Right. Called America First. Yeah. There was some. We have to. There, I, I think there's understandable, even though it was the wrong position, given how horrible World War One was. But more importantly, mm-hmm. there are two other factors too. One, we had a draft in World War Two. We had conscription. Everybody knew somebody who was part of the war effort. It was much more tangible than after 9-11 when George W. Bush said, just go shopping and support the economy. Yeah. The other thing is, in World War Two, we ended the war in Japan by dropping atomic weapons, the only time in history, and we we 
devastated Germany with we firebombed cities. We used a level of violence which would be considered unthinkable today, especially right. in a war like in Iraq. I'm not arguing that we should drop more we nuclear weapons. That's not my point. My point is, is that when you use that level of violence, you can create a year zero effect in right. a place like Japan or Germany. We never had that in Iraq. And we maybe should have thought that through, saying we're not willing to use this right. this level well, of violence. And so maybe we have to do it another way. And that's where they could have had a creative thing with the CIA or maybe you know supporting rebel fighters or something like that would have maybe been a better, similar to what we're seeing in Ukraine, which is say, we're going to support the Ukrainians, but we're not going to ourselves get in a shooting war with Russia. I think the, the I've I've often run the, this counterfactual. Yeah, I want to share this with you, okay? Because uh, this is this is why I think it was inevitable that the United States went into Iraq, um, and that probably something very similar would have happened under any circumstances. Uh, November twenty twenty or December twenty twenty, the Supreme Court does not stop the counting or whatever. Yeah, and Gore wins. Gore is actually sworn in as president. Twenty twenty January. What? I'm sorry, two thousand. Sorry, yeah. Gore sworn in as president. Uh and nine eleven happens because not this whole idea that somehow you know Bush got a warning on a, August sixth from from the daily uh, presidential intelligence briefing and therefore could have mobilized the country to nine eleven happens. You think we wouldn't have gone into Iraq? We might have gone into Iraq sooner. Gore and Clinton were on the record saying that Iraq was the key sponsor of state terrorism and that it had, if, if as Clinton said in 1998, if he gets biological or chemical or nuclear weapons, I guarantee you he will use them. He said that in explaining why he was bombing to open that no-fly zone that 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 Eli talked about. Al Gore, this was Al Gore's hawkish issue, was Iraq. Gore would have gone into Iraq. But when then, Gore opposed the war in 2003, his argument was, we can't trust a Republican administration to stay long enough to finish it and rebuild the country. That I love that little detail. It wasn't that it's a terrible idea. It was like, yeah, you yeah. know, getting rid of Saddam Hussein was great, but you can't trust yeah. these Democrats. I mean, you can't trust Republicans. You got to Democrats will make it make sure it's a long enough war. Anyway, this is the fundamental point, which is that we went to war in Iraq because Saddam Hussein wanted us to go to war in Iraq for whatever perverse reason. In other words, he had he had ten thousand moments along the way when he could have said, "I don't have them. I don't have the weapons. Come look." Well, I, I would Eli say Saddam, was, Saddam yeah. wanted wanted to erode the sanctions against him right. and pick off other countries that would start right. a commercial relationship, similar to what North Korea has done from time to time. It's like he wanted right. to basically break the will of the United States. And yeah. I don't necessarily think he knew that America would invade him, but I definitely think he was banking on like, I'm going to I'm going to stare them down and I bet yeah. I'm going to get the Europeans and others to eventually do business with me. Yeah, but I mean, look, in yeah. in September 20, 2002, when Bush went to the uh, General Assembly uh, at the U.N. and basically said, we are going to go to war in Iraq and you're either with us or you're against us. Um, uh there was another, what was it, six months, seven months until the war actually started? Yeah. And Hussein, Hassan, we don't know anything about his psychology except what we sort of speculate about. Well, no, no, we we know a lot, actually, okay. because he okay. was interviewed okay. when he was in detention before yeah. he was okay, that's uh, right. executed. We we interviewed all of his senior people. Yeah. And we know that he he thought it would be worse for him to acknowledge he didn't right. have it, have the weapons that it made it, he made it seem like he was concealing. Right. Well, and he was wrong about that is my point. So my point yeah. is that he made the decisions that led to the war starting. I mean, it was a war of choice. It was a preemptive war, all of that, that everybody says, and maybe it was a preemptive war that was unnecessary because he didn't have the weapons that he said he had. And that is the problem with preemptive war. You know, it's why you want the it's why you want the Confederacy to fire first at Fort Sumter <laughs> instead of. Well, if instead I, if of, I can make a, a sort of domestic yeah. media point, and then we can just wrap up the conversation yeah. on this. One of the journalists in this period who 
basically forwarded the myth that actually the Bush administration was lying and that they knew that he didn't have the weapons of mass destruction is David Korn. And here is David Korn again, some 20 years later, you know, kind of like his his first iteration in this period is like, well, you know, there were these dissenting voices inside the intelligence community and, you know, look how, you know, deceptive this whole thing is. And this he sort of makes his name. And now he is sort of the last defender of these institutions, if you will, even after it's now obvious that they were playing fast and loose on Russiagate. He's the last guy who says, no, 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 they've got nothing to apologize for. I find that yeah. hilarious. Excellent point. And, you know, yeah. you, you can't you can't go wrong attacking David Corn. <laughs> anyway, um, so Eli Lake, again, please go subscribe to his re-education uh, podcast. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. So for uh, Abe and Christine and the absent Matt Connetti, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.